Your now is not my now. And again, your then is not my then. But my now may be your then, and vice versa. Whose head is competent to these things? Charles Lamb, 1817. Funny irony though, a century later, Einstein discovered that perfect simultaneity is a chimera. The technology of our interconnected world relies on simultaneity as never before. When telephone network switches get out of sync, they drop calls. While no physicist believes in absolute time, humanity has established a collective official timescale preached by a choir of atomic clocks maintained at a temperature near absolute zero in vaults at the United States Naval Observatory in Washington and elsewhere. They bounce their network-like speed signals to one another, make the necessary relativistic connections, and thus the world sets its myriad clocks. Confusion about past and future cannot be tolerated. To Newton, this would make perfect sense. International atomic time has the effect of codifying the absolute time that he created, and for the same reason, it lets the equations work out and the trains run on time. A century before Einstein, this technical achievement in simultaneity would have been almost impossible to conceive. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at Syncbook. It's Monday, December 18th, 2018, and today for 42 minutes we will consider Rob Shapiro's mouth. Rob Shapiro is a voice actor, narrator, songwriter, and performer living in Los Angeles, but he's really everywhere. As a voiceover artist, he can be heard narrating such audiobooks as the best-selling The Information by James Glick, Frank The Voice by James Kaplan, and the fantasy noir Lowtown by Daniel Polanski. He performed several seasons of radio comedy at the Minneapolis Public Radio as Leo the Lion. He is also a musician and composer with his critically acclaimed band Populux. Most recently, the band produced Lumiere this past fall, to which we'll naturally link. More information about the band and Rob can be found at populuxhq.com. It really is a treat to be meeting someone with whom I've shared so many of my favorite books. How are you doing this morning, Rob? I am doing fine, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, I first met you in Jaron Lanier's You Are Not a Gadget, but it really... Spectacular book. Yeah, it really was in the world of James Glick that you know you became a voice in my head regularly. How does one become an audiobook artist? Uh, uh, for me, it was deciding that, yeah, I used to be in technology. Uh, that was how I earned my living for a long time. And when the economy collapsed, uh, there was uh, all of a sudden my, my sort of financial security went haywire. And one day uh, I just sat down and made a list of everything that I could do competently and then looked at it and thought, you know, the one thing that I'm not doing that I used to do and that I love doing is being in front of a microphone. That was what I trained in. You know, was a, my, my background is actually in theater. And after all these years of business, I thought, I want to get back to, to what I set out to do, which was to act and perform. And so I said, to my then girlfriend, now wife, 
how would you feel if I just abandoned all this, this stuff that I'm doing for business and went after audiobooks? Seemed like a safe bet for me. I've studied theater. I know my way around a studio. I know my way around microphones. And I read all the time to the kids. I write every night. And uh, little did I know it was really competitive, uh, which it was. Um, but, you know, usually a good amount of determination uh, will get you where you want to go. And so that was that was it. I just decided this was something I wanted to do. And one of the one of the early books was You Are Not a Gadget. Uh, that was one of the first that was really sort of in this line of thinking. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was a, a spectacular book, a really interesting book. Uh, and you can you, there's a there's a throughput from that book through uh, James Glick's books up to uh, the Max Tegmark books that I've read. Uh, and there's, there, it's just a lot of a combination of sort of heavy, uh, physics and quantum theory combined with what is sort of the, the, what are the operating philosophies that we have to consider as we speciate? It's fascinating stuff. Well, the other fascinating thing, like you kind of mentioned though, is that in the world of audiobooks, oftentimes when, you, when you're married with an author and you have no idea what that author is going to do career-wise, you end up becoming the voice of the author. Yes, which is great when the author is terrific. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've been really lucky. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's so great because whenever James Glick writes a book, I generally get to narrate it. And he's a spectacular writer. I mean, the information was... Uh, one of the most challenging things I've ever done because it is, I think you've, you've, you've listened to that one and it is incredibly densely packed and you have to be able to lead the listener through the text and get them to sort of understand the concept, wait for them, give, give them, give each listener enough room, enough space to sort of grasp and internalize a concept before moving on to the next. But the timing has got to be dead on perfect because if you wait too long if it's too long of a pause you lose the listener if you go too quickly you lose meaning so you have to just draw them along really really carefully and keep up a measured pace plus you have to understand what you're talking about so that one was one where when we were reading the information i was spending probably two or three hours a night just in prep to, to read through what was what i was going to read the next day really sort of get a firm grasp of what the underlying concepts were so that when I was reading it, I could really explain it. It's an incredibly personal art form. It's, it's, it's just my voice or the voice of the reader and the ear of the listener. And that is it. It's incredibly personal. And if you're doing your job well, you, you can make the, the author's words better. But if you're doing your, your job poorly, you can make an excellent writer suck. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the, the best, the best my, my favorite reviews or my favorite comments are the ones where the, the listener enthuses about the book, enthuses about the concepts, enthuses about all these really sort of granular details in the book and never mentions my name. Because that means I've done my job right. I've gotten out of the way. And they're really hearing the book. And they're internalizing the book. And that's either for fiction or nonfiction. 
they both have their challenges, but yeah, if you do it poorly, if, if your read of it overtakes the book, you're doing it wrong. Even if your read of it's excellent, if your read of it overtakes the book and the book is now about your performance of it, to my way of thinking, you're doing it wrong. My job is to be the voice of the author and to do, to do that author's intention as cleanly and as purely and as getting out of the way as humanly possible. You should, you should, you should lose the sense of hearing my adenoidal voice five minutes after turning it on. All of a sudden, you're just in the story and you're not noticing me at all. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating because when you talk in my head, yours is the voice of James Glick. Just because <laughs> you've narrated all those books to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, bravo. Which is an incredible honor. He's one of the great. You, you know, he really is one of the great thinkers and and sort of compilers of great thinking of our era. Uh, I mean, I really thought the information was just a spectacular piece of work, in- incredibly sweeping and incredibly important. Yeah, but then the time travel book too. Yeah, the time and the, the time and the the one that I really loved about the time travel book was that it was really playful. Yeah. Whereas the information not particularly playful. It was deep and interesting and fascinating and and it went very 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 deep. Time travel there was a lot of playfulness in it. Uh and I loved that. I it was fun to see him get kind of like I said just just playful. Well, so you mentioned like on the information you sp- would spend 2 hours of prep at night and so that that's something I'm curious about whether or not you sometimes it's e- for me sometimes it's easier just to read things cold and I feel like sometimes that is more authentic than if I spend a lot of time rehearsing it. But as an actor, I would guess that um, you have a lot more nuance in uh, what you're trying to accomplish. You know, so what what is it like? Because like audiobooks have a producer also, oftentimes, you know, yeah. and and then like how notated is your text? Um, it really depends on the kind of book. Uh, for something like the information, what I was reading for was not about cadence or anything else. It was about understanding the underlying concepts so that, because my job in this was really to, to take the words off the page and really describe them well so that the listener could understand these concepts. So to get somebody to understand something, you have to understand it yourself. And so it became important for me to, to, to read through it and go, okay, really, what is he saying here? And what are the underlying ideas that he's that he's discussing? So I was just doing research um, on other books, like on fiction. You want to read ahead. You want to know what the arc of each character is. You want to know <laughs> and this has happened to every narrator who has ever tried to do something cold. You read something and maybe three quarters of the way through, you find out that the character that you have voiced as somebody Southern is French. <laughs> and you have to go back and redo it and that sucks um, and I, I don't know a narrator who hasn't suffered for that so fiction you always have to read all the way through some books you can read if, if it's purely informational you have to read enough of it to know what the what the voice of the book is and each voice is going to have a different a different sound um, a slightly different approach and that's just kind of in your tone and how how intimately you're going to be speaking it. Some books, like 
on the information as sort of professorial as that book is, it became important very quickly. I realized that you had to do, it had to be a little bit more, my approach had to be as convert, but the base sort of approach, the baseline had to be as kind of as conversational as it could be because it was so high minded that if you, if you skewed too hard towards kind of a percussive or a little, a little more removed of a, of a sound, it was going to be very, very difficult for a listener to kind of be in it. Um, so you're always playing kind of a balancing game. How, how intimate does this need to be? I did a really wonderful book called, oh, what was the name of it? It was about modern medicine. Uh, One Patient, I think is the name of it, um, by a, a doctor, uh, a general practitioner by the name of uh, Dr. Brendan, I think, O'Reilly. And what was really lovely about that book is that it had a lot of, a lot of scenes were recounted from his years as a doctor. So there were a lot of like singular characters who would show up. But also the voice itself of the book was very, very conversational. So you could just slip right in and just, okay, I'm just going to, this is who I am. I'm the voice of this book. So I am this doctor. And that's what it's going to be. Oh, it was called One Doctor. That was it. Not One Patient. One Doctor. Really, actually, a very, very, very good book. Uh, but, you know, each, each book has got to have its own tone. And so sometimes that's really what you're looking for. How am I going to read this? And then you want to find out if there's going to be big jumps in it, big sort of um, big peaks. A lot of fiction books will have like a big, loud peak. You got to figure that into it. What's going to be the dynamic range of this? Uh, Stuff like that. How much work goes into this life of yours? Do you you end up having to read uh, every day? You, you know, you're doing some narration every single day and, and how many hours a day can one do that without, you know, hurting your instrument? Well, there's a couple things. Uh, I, you know, I'm not, I, I know a lot of narrators who read every day. Um, I am not one of them because I'm doing a thousand. I, I try to do a lot of different things. Plus I have children. Uh, I have, I have a wide range of children, so I, they keep me pretty busy. Um, and I have, you know, I have a marriage and a life. I'm a musician and I'm a composer. So that takes up some time, but generally the way that, the way that it works is when you're doing an audio book, for the most part, you're getting paid per finished audio hour. So you're not getting paid for your time in the studio. You're getting paid for the amount of time that, Like if there's a finished audio hour, however many hours it took you in the studio to get that hour as a material, you're just getting paid for that one hour and you get paid a fixed rate for it. So it's in your best interest to be as efficient as possible when you're in the studio. Um, Generally, it really depends on the book. Um, When you're reading, you're, you're performing some fairly sophisticated and mentally taxing functions you are you're articulating words that you've already said or that you've already read rather and you're reading ahead usually maybe a line or two 
to know where this sentence is going to land, because each sentence has its own discrete structure. In each sentence, you're going to want to land it a little differently. And it's like, it's basically like you're doing a mental gymnastics routine at all times that just doesn't end. So if you're reading something that's very conversational, it's written in the conversational tone, it has a lot of different flow to it. The sentence structures are all different. Um, They're not a lot, they're not a ton of comparatives. You can go for an hour and 15 minutes before you need a break. If you're reading something that has a lot of foreign language in it, uh, particularly languages that don't roll off the tongue easily, like German, um, which unfortunately in a lot of science texts or science histories, there's going to be a lot of German. Uh, that is much more mentally taxing. And there have been books that I'll need to take a break after 20 minutes. It's in part because the sentence structure is more difficult. There are, you'll, you'll find that there are comparatives at the beginning of a paragraph and at the end of a paragraph, as opposed to in a sentence. Um, so you have to somehow structure the entire paragraph so that you can, the listener understands, ah, I'm referring back to this concept, this comparative concept at the beginning of this paragraph, and they can understand the whole thing. And then there are some writers who have a, 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 a style of writing that doesn't vary. So their rhythm will be and if you read it like that, you are going to bore, you're going to lose your audience. It just numbs their brain. So you have to find a way of varying that rhythm and finding a different way. You still have to, you still have to honor the text, but finding a different way of sort of parsing it out and pulling it out and, and creating it a flow. And that's mentally taxing. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I'm so used to it now that you can, I, I know, I can see exactly when it's going to happen. And it would be, it would be a fascinating study to see exactly how much brain power is used for each thing. Hmm. <laughs> so, so basically you're saying you can do two things at, at one time. <laughs> Or you have to. You have to. You have to. It's an, it's an, I mean, people will say like, oh, what a great job. You, you sit in a chair and read. It's like, yeah, it's a great job. Try it. <laughs> Try it. It is. I mean, there are days like on, on books like, uh, like the information, there have been some books on, uh, on, on AI that I've done that these people are writing more like scientific white papers than they're writing a novel. I mean, one of the things I really like about James Glick is that he writes almost novelistically. So it makes it very, very, very easy. It's a great storyteller. Um, but there are some, you know, some pieces that I've read that are, they are not written by people who are trying to, to write something that's going to be read out loud. They're writing essentially a white paper. They're used to writing technically. And man, after six hours of a day of that, I am beat. I beat like I just ran a marathon, like that exhausted, like driving home, hard to keep your eyes open. And I've just been sitting in a chair and reading, but the, the amount of concentration and, and like these incredibly extruded mental processes, it's exhausting. And it's really fascinating. I tried it one time 
because there isn't an audio version of uh, Carl Jung's Synchronicity. And the thing that uh-huh. I <laughs> the thing that I recognized is that I mean, all of a sudden you're making mistakes constantly, and so yeah. I I thought of it like uh like maybe how how they do movie cuts, but so like the the tape is always rolling, and so when you make a mistake, do you immediately go back to a point that is going to make the flow work, and then start again? Like there was no mistake. Yeah. 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 So what I do is I'll just stop right there. If I'm self-directing, uh, I'm, I'm sitting in my booth. I'll stop right where I made the mistake. I'll go back to the last place where I had a nice clean break. Usually it's at a, a comma or a period and put my cursor there and roll back into it. Um, and generally I'll know exactly where I was in terms of like its flow at that point. The other thing to know is when you start making a lot of mistakes in a row, that's when it's time to take a break. All right. Give, give yourself 10 minutes, walk outside, clear your head, have a drink of water, have a cup of coffee. Um, go back in. That's when you, that's when you know that it's you're you're fried. Also, when you start seeing words kind of swim on the page, you've got about a half a page left. And it's time to it's time to take a break. You want to get to the next paragraph break, and you just okay. I'm stepping away for a minute. The other strange thing I, I noticed, though, is that when I'm just speaking normally, conversationally, you know, I don't I don't have any discomfort in my throat or voice or anything. But if I'm reading something, I I end up having to drink a lot of water because my throat gets really scratchy. Is, yeah. What the heck is going on yeah, there? The water- well, the reason why is because unless you are really in love with the sound of your own voice, you don't filibuster for an hour straight. In a conversation, somebody else talks, you listen, you swallow, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, then you then you add a point. Then you say, oh, there's this, 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 and this. And then they counter. So there's you're constantly having little breaks. Plus, you're not reading ahead. You're not doing all these other, all of these little, these little mental tricks tax your entire system. They don't just tax your, your, your thinking. They tax everything. They tax you physically. So after, you know, like I said, there are some books that, that on a lot of these really heavy theoretical type books, I'll go 20, 25 minutes and then I need a 10 minute break. And then I'll do another 25 minutes and 10 minute break on a novel or something very conversational, a biography. Then it's, oh, I can go an hour, hour, hour 20. No break. Not a problem. And you do, your, your voice gets scratchy. And when your tone starts to go, that's the other thing. You have to take care of your instrument. You can't be, you know, you really can't be a smoker. Uh, in the winter months when kids are coming home with all kinds of diseases and colds. I have to be, I factor that into any read that I'm doing. So I want to make sure if I know that there's the likelihood that I'm going to get a cold, I'm going to make sure that I keep my tone, my bass tone, low, soft, subtle, so that if I do get a cold, it's not going to be noticeable to the listener. This is just, that's the tone I have. 
it's it's a it's a lot of weird little subtle tricks. Plus, you have to know what what drinks gunk up my throat. How much coffee can I drink? What happens when my tongue gets dry, or if I burn the tip of my tongue? What happens to my sound after that? All these like weird little things. <laughs> Keeping your, you know, making sure you have chapstick. Keeping your lips from getting getting chapped and getting uncomfortable. Studios that are dry. So you have to have like nasal spray. I mean, all kinds of weird little things that you just, you know, nobody would ever think of. Pillows. What kind of what kind of seat am I going to sit in? What kind of shirt am I going to wear? Can't wear a shirt that's going to make noise. Got to wear like a, a t-shirt or a like a, a soft kind of jersey. All these like weird, weird little things. And uh, if you don't do them, if you don't think about them, they take the listener right out of the book. Yeah. Were you a fan of audiobooks before you started into this world? I was always a fan of radio. I didn't know audiobooks, but I've always loved radio. I've always loved audio as a medium in general. Yeah. I loved radio drama. Um, I've always, obviously, I've loved music. Uh, in the era in which I grew up, in the, in the you know, I'm born in the late 60s. Um, in the 70s, you know, the radio that I grew up with was still really kind of fascinating. People would do little vignettes and skits on the radio. You had novelty songs and stuff like that that had a lot of, like, dialogue and narration. And when we went on long trips, we would listen to, you know, radio dramas and radio comedies. And I loved it because it was, it was a, it had all the things that I loved about cartoons, which were mostly the voices. You know, I still love the visual presentation of a cartoon, but I can go for hours just listening to Mel Blanc and June Foray, who is probably the greatest voice artist who ever lived. Um, Dawes Butler, Paul Fries. I mean, these people were like my heroes as a kid and still are. So the idea of working in audio is just is wonderful. And if you come from a theater background, reading is just great. It's, it's, it's kind of magical. I mean, the idea that you get to be, we talk about this, you get to be the entire experience. You are not just the narrator, you're the theater. You have to, you have to be the props, the proscenium, every, every little thing for the listener, you are it. So you have to get the entire thing across. And that's, it's a great challenge. Yeah. Plus, it, it really sharpens your skill at language. So reading a script now, after doing 10 years of audiobooks, is very different from what it was before. It's much more, it, it's, a, it's a more finely honed skill. Well, and I, I love language. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about that, but I was going to say, it seems like in the last handful of years that a lot of A-list actors have come into the audiobook world because of, you know, exactly what you said, this You're the Whole Theater really is this really interesting art form. I think it's probably a lot more work than maybe some of them would, would realize, but the, the ones who do it well end up doing it very well. Yeah, and there, there are people who are so good at what they do, you know. Um, I'm lucky to know them. I mean, there, are, and it's, it's, it's magnificent. It really is. It's a, it's, it is not for the faint of heart. I mean, I, uh, again, like all of us sort of in the narrator world, 
a lot of us will be approached by friends like, oh, do you know, is that something I could do? And I say, yeah, it's definitely something you can do, but it's different than what you think it is. It is a marathon, not a sprint. If you're doing a 30-hour book, you got to figure that you're maybe getting, on a really good day, you're getting maximum about four hours of finished audio in a day. Uh, if you're working at a good, uh, to me, a good ratio of studio hour to finished audio hour, I like to be between one, you know, one to one is perfect, obviously, but about one and a half. If, I, if I'm doing one and a half, that's where that's sort of my threshold. That's where I want. I want to be one and a half or under. Um, if you're doing a 30 hour audiobook, you're talking about minimum 45 hours of sitting in front of a microphone, not including breaks. So you're looking at, you know, maybe a week and a half because you figure that about six hours of sitting down in front of a microphone is pretty much about all you can tolerate. That's a lot of time to do one book and you're getting, you know, it's not, you don't do it for the, for the money or the glamor. Um, you do it because you love reading and you love books. And also there's another thing that I really love about it, which is that we're preserving idiomatic language. Um, one of the things that I'm noticing is I'm getting older and my grandparents, you know, I, I lost my last grandmother uh, a couple of years ago. Um, we just lost my wife's grandmother last week or two weeks ago. Is that the language that they spoke and their way of speaking, the rhythms that they spoke in, their accents are gone now. And when you read, if you read a, a piece of sort of contemporary literature that was contemporaneous with their, their lives, I, when I read it, I hear their rhythms. Like if I read something like beat literature, I don't hear it spoken in, in modern idiomatic language. I really hear it in kind of the rhythm that they spoke it then. That's part of what informs its meaning is the rhythm is the cadence of it. Great actors do that really well. Uh, I find actually the best actors to, to, who do that are comedians. You listen to Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor can, with with inflection and and two or three words can impart an entire character you know exactly who the, you know who this person is so well you know what's on their bureau you know what kind of you know what they smell like you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and that's something that as narrators especially reading contemporary literature in 50 years when we're all gone and our manner of speaking is antiquated. You're going to be able to go back and listen to it and hear what conversational language sounded like. And I really think that's wonderful because I miss the way my grandparents spoke. There was a cadence that they had that was really lovely. And that's not really reflected in the, in the theater or, or the art of that time because the, the theater and art of that time was, was more formalized. So the people who spoke in, in film, for example, were, were trained on stage. So when people do like a New York accent, it's always this real odd thing. That was more Boston. But we didn't really start getting conversational acting until sort of the late 50s, um, at, least, at least on film. We didn't get that kind of intimate, that real sense of intimacy. Um, 
So the language that my grandparents spoke is not really reflected. And the way that they spoke is not really reflected in the art of the time. The way that they spoke at home was very soft. Whereas if you see, you know, films of New York from the 1930s, 1940s, it's very percussive, very hard, very loud honking. That's not what they sounded like. In conversation, they were very soft and very lyrical. And uh, a really great example of that is if you look at the difference between Groucho Marx as the character Groucho in the Marx Brothers movies, and then the difference between that and him when he was doing You Bet Your Life, when he was just unguarded and conversing with people. It's a very soft, gentle tone. And that's really the way that, that people spoke. And, and part of what we do in our world is we're preserving idiomatic language. When the way we speak is, is no longer it's no longer how people talk is, is antiquated and old-fashioned and weird, people will be able to go back and listen to it. Imagine what it would be like to listen to Shakespeare spoken in Shakespeare's time. Or Poe, another one of my big favorites. Read, you know, spoken intimately and in that era. We would know, we would understand so much more of the nuance of it. And that's what we're preserving. When we do our job well, that's what we're preserving. What about writing? And so I know I tend to edit aloud. Um, that was just personally my own process. But by reading so much and actually uh, you know, thinking about the words as you're speaking them, what has that done for you as a writer and and? You know, I, I there was one blurb I read on one of the websites that said you are writing a a novel. Is you know what what's that about? Well, it makes it. I, I write all the time. I mean, I write little. I just write all the time. Um, it first of all, your your sensitivity to language is much 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 greater, much finer. Secondly, you know, I I came from as a as a as a kid, I really wanted to write. I've always loved books, always, since I was a very little boy. And then I really loved Poe. Poe became a huge favorite of mine as, a, as an elementary school kid. Um, as a teenager, I fell in love with beat literature. You know, I read all the, all the Kerouac, all the Ginsburg, all the Burroughs, all that sort of great mid-century American stuff. And then as an adult, uh, when I was working in technology, I started having to write white papers and, and technical documentation. And, and so language went from being something that was descriptive and fun to being something that was functional and precise. And you had to be very, very, very careful with what you wrote. I was writing uh, instructional documentation for, for pieces of software that we were developing. I was writing contracts. And language for contracts and instructional documentation has got to be very clear. Um, after that, going into audiobooks and different kinds of fiction, different kinds of writers, it's just, first of all, your vocabulary expands wonderfully. Mm -hmm. And you begin to understand what works and what doesn't. If you're noticing that there is a writer that repeats their rhythm every, every sentence, it's irritating. It's irritating as a, as a narrator, and it's not something you would necessarily have noticed before. 
Mm-hmm. But those kinds of things, alliteration begins to drive you bananas. It's real fun when you write it on paper. Like, oh, I just crammed a bunch of peas in. <laughs> you know, that sounded great. But when, when you're the person who has to say it, all of a sudden it doesn't seem so wonderful. So you got to choose those moments carefully. It just makes it, it, it makes the world of writing all the more. It's like any other art form. Once you get into it, it the, the, the world of discovery and the world of finesse is never ending. You know, the, all the, you, you always feel like you're, oh, I'm just getting started. I'm just finally learning something. You know, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, there's definitely a few of you narrators that, you know, it doesn't even matter what you guys are reading. I'm willing to take a chance with an author that I ha- I don't know because of uh, the competence of the the reader. Who who are some of your favorites? Some of my favorite readers? Yeah. Um, you know, generally my friends. You know, Scott Brick is probably, he's one of the best. Um, I really like John Lee. John's a fantastic reader. Uh, Cassandra Campbell is terrific. Uh, there's there's a lot of them. Yeah. You know, most of them from theater. Um, it really depends on the book. Uh, Scott's great because Scott and I both love a lot of the same kinds of stuff. So, uh, I, when I hear him, I know what he's doing and, uh, I know, I know sort of, I'll know what he's referencing in certain things. And that's always just sort of delightful because we both love vaudeville. We both love old comedy. We both love old radio stuff. Um, we both love Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and that style of noir. Um, it's a big thing for, for both of us, just as like fans of, of literature. So when I listen to him, I know I'm like, oh, that's just, I know exactly where he's going. Uh, Sandra's just a wonderful actor. Uh, Bonnie Turpin, same, same thing. Just, it's just people who love language. And you can hear their love of it and are willing to go, are willing to dig in. There's another thing, you know, especially people who are doing fiction and difficult fiction is being vulnerable and allowing, allowing the piece to, to take you someplace and allowing yourself to do that in front of an audience. It's the same thing as acting. It's, it, it, it's just acting for the microphone. Um, so any, any really good actor who understands that uh, is just a joy to listen to. And you have to be vulnerable on stage as a band too. Let's talk about the band a little bit. Did you guys start out in New York? Yes. A million years uh, ago? <laughs> well, it's beginning to feel like a million years ago. Um, didn't seem that long ago then. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, it's like, uh, that's a long time. My, my oldest child was a toddler. Uh, yeah, the band started in, uh, first iteration was uh, mid-95. Uh, and we have really been, it's been Populux since 96 and I'm already working on the next record. We just did Lumiere. Um, I now have my own studio, so that makes life a lot easier. I actually, this last record was the first one that I completely oversaw. I've always had good engineers and good producers and, and, but this one was the first one that 
we did it in my room. I engineered it. Uh, I mixed it. It was all recorded in there. A lot of work. Very, very, very big challenge, but but worth it because now I know a little more. I say a little more. I know a little more of what I'm doing. It's all still a, a big mystery, and I don't, I don't think that changes. Um, but yeah, and I'm also building my own guitars, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, so um, so that's fun because it's always fun to go back there and make a really loud noise or a really interesting noise. And then, you know, make some music, make a piece of music. How how close to the original outfit or the 96 Populux is to now? Is it the same? Um, the only difference is the bass player. Uh, you know, it kind of floats in and out. I've had there have been a lot of different members of Populux over the years now. But we are essentially back to Mark, the drummer, who I've been working with since January of 1996. Um and you know he it's it's one of those situations where it's like we get together and it just fits just fits as that conversational element and the bass player we've been playing with him mike who is magnificent uh we've been playing with him since 2011 but i've been playing with him since 2009 mark was out for a long time because he was on tour constantly uh so that changed that changed things so i've been working with mike for almost 10 years um but then we it's been about eight that the uh that the three of us have been the unit and it's been actually the best it's ever been it's great why the move from new york to la is that a work decision it was a work decision when i lived in in new york i was uh i was living in brooklyn and it was great but I couldn't afford to buy my own house. And I was working, we had a really great situation um, in an apartment in Park Slope. Um, it was beautiful. We had two floors. I had a closed door office. It was incredible. And we were paying like nothing for it. Uh, but the, I didn't own it. I wasn't allowed to do any modifications to it. And even though it was, astonishingly inexpensive um it still was a lot of money and to me i was like i don't you know if i'm paying this much money i want to own i want to be investing in my own future and mark was going off and doing he had gotten a national tour that he needed to go and do so i was sort of at a at a weird crossroads and i actually happened to come out to california i had lived here as a teenager so I had come out here just to visit. My dad was living out here. My mom was living out here. Um, one of my sisters was out here. And uh, so I was out to visit. And I talked to an old friend of mine who was a musician and said, yeah, I think I want to play a gig when I'm in, when I'm in L.A. And he said, oh, I'll play it with you. He's a multi-instrumentalist, my friend Josh Siegel. Great player. So I said, oh, great, you know. And within a day, he called me and he said, hey, a bunch of us want to play it. Do you want to do it? Said, yeah. I had a six-piece band of just old friends of mine, guys that I came up with, you know, and uh, came out, played the gig. And the populace work is, is subtly difficult. There's a lot of odd times. There's a lot of modulation, um, a lot of things under the surface that are not easy. 
And with two rehearsals, we played a 12-song set of difficult material and played it really well. And I went, I'm going to make the next record out here. So initially I came out to make the next record, but I could afford to buy a house at the time. Um, the, the housing market hadn't gone crazy. And I thought, all right, let's buy a house and settle here for a while. And I've just stayed. It's been 18 years now. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, this was a pleasure, Doug. Thank you for having me. You bet. You've been listening to Rob Shapiro on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. Check out his website at populuxhq.com for more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. If compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks so much. And it's not the amount of knowledge that makes a brain. It's not even the distribution of knowledge. It's the interconnectedness. (laughs) 